The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This will be the last of our um, semi-guided meditations um, that we may just come together for a small short sit at the end. But, yeah, that's all I need to say. So we'll sit for, um, where are we? I should, yeah, about 20 minutes, I should think. So bring yourself back to your breath and your starting point here, now. Mind and body together, anchored by the breath. You can use the breath to question where does the inner end and the outer begin? And where does the outer end and the inner begin? And we started today by paying attention in our sitting to what is our self and looking initially at the inner self, at the components nearest to us. And then, in the next sitting, we expanded our field of awareness of the self to see how it was influenced 
by our relationships, by family, by friends, by the eyes of the other, by work, culture, nationality. And we sat, perhaps with all the people, in the center of that field. And now I want to encourage you to move your attention even further afield, beyond the physical boundaries of this room, out into the environment, and even if only in imagination, beyond the horizon. And to imagine yourself in the center of all of this, and contemplate the influences of your, on yourself of the whole horizon of your experience. Seeing yourself as part of the greater world. As sometimes you might do or notice when you go out at night outside the city and you look up at the night sky, which suddenly I think gives us another perspective on ourselves and on our little lives. can consider how ourselves are influenced by our world, by the weather, by the seasons, by the news of the world. how by paying attention we can shift the horizons of ourself
there is one meditation one can do that I think encourages this sense of expansion. Some of you may know it. It's called sitting like a mountain. I encourage you to imagine a mountain. Maybe many of you live in the mountains and the hills around here, so you have a mountain in mind. And imagine its shape, its sloping sides. You might want to put snow on top of it. There may be trees. Then bring the mountain image into your body so that your body sitting here on the cushion and the mountain become one. The mountain in your imagination and the body on the cushion. Experience in your body the sense of the mountain in your spine, a centered, unmoving presence. Imagine the rootedness of the mountain in face of change, its acceptance of weather. The light moves over it. The wind changes. Snow falls. Rain falls. Sun beams. Colors change. The seasons pass. Embody its impersonality and its stillness and acceptance in the face of such change. See if by embodying the mountain in your meditation you can link up with its strength and stability. Using this, to help to encounter each moment with mindfulness, equanimity, and clarity. Can we see our emotional storms and crises and fleeting thoughts and feelings like the weather on the mountain? Can we encounter them and meet them with receptivity and acknowledge them without letting them blow us away? Knowing that like the wind and the weather, they too will pass away and change.
the birds have vanished into the sky and now the last cloud drains away. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. Coming back from the mountain, you may want to very gently bring, narrow your perceptual field back into the room and then back to yourself sitting on your cushion, into your body make contact with your surroundings again.
anyone want to say anything either about that meditation or all the three that we've done? some of you on the mountain. <laughs> Thank you. That's fine. Uh, well, I had to switch images because when you um, said to pick a mountain, I picked this hill that's close to where I actually live on this hill. And um, I'm very aware of the fact that the hill is not actually a natural shape because at one time it was excavated for rock. So it has a cliff face and, you know, and it's, you know, there was trucks up there at one time. I mean, this is many years ago, but, you know, it's not, it's excavated. And so when um, I was on the mountain and then when you said, make your, your spine and column and, you know, and I thought, no, wait a minute, I gotta pick a different mountain. <laughs> this isn't gonna work for my body. <laughs> I think that's, that's the danger of giving someone a guided meditation because you can really get in their way. That's a good image though, too, the mountain. I mean, anyway. um, does anyone else want to? There are other meditations like that you can do. There's a, there's a um, wonderful John Kabat-Zinn one, which is a standing meditation like a tree. Um, you know, you can stand close to a tree. Um, I'll give you his direct. Feel your feet growing roots into the ground. Feel your res- body responding to the wind as trees do. Drink in your surroundings with your eyes. Then close your eyes and sense your surroundings. When your body or mind tells you that it's time to move on, stay a little longer, remembering how long trees stand. See if they have anything to tell you about stillness and about being in touch. They touch the ground with roots, the air with branches, sunlight and wind with their leaves. Try to open yourself to experience air on skin, feel of feet on ground, the sounds around, the dance of light and colour, the dance of the mind. It's a nice one you might want to try at some point. Um, I remember doing a meditation I think it was a Joan Halifax retreat. And it was in England, and it was dreadful weather. And we did quite a bit of walking meditation. And Joan said she had just come from somewhere where, of course, the weather was absolutely gorgeous. And they had done the walking meditation to the little sort of mantra of walking the green earth which was rather lovely. But we had to change it to walking the grey 
carpet. <laughs> and I've always it stayed with me. But sometimes to have a little mantra like that, I think is 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 quite useful. And I think, you know, walking meditation is wonderful. Um, sometimes the walk itself can be the meditation and forget the walking meditation and just walk outside. And why am I saying all this? Because it shifts our perspective. It helps our attention in a new way, um, which I think is wonderful. Uh, there is a funny little book that I highly recommend. Um, it's by a French philosopher, and it's called Astonish Yourself, A 101 Experiments in the Philosophy of Everyday Life. And I really can't remember what they are, but they're really weird, like having a shower in the dark. Watching those times when you see light coming through a window and you can see all the particles of dust. Um, I forget all the others, but um, I think this... It's all aids for the practice of attention to kind of tweak our perspectives to make us see um, I always think it's very distressing which is probably deeply critical and unthinking of me here when I'm walking out on the trails here and you know I think there is some of the most beautiful landscape ever around around this area and then I will see people who come with earphones <laughs> and, and, and they're listening to music and they're going to beat their time and they're going to do this trail in 10 minutes. And I'm sure it's frightfully good for the body, but it always distresses me. It always seems a little bit like the bee somewhere else. And I think I want to stop them and sort of say, don't you realize you couldn't be anywhere more wonderful? Just stop. Slow down, take it in. Um, I love that Navajo saying, walk in beauty, walk in harmony. I think that's probably the heart of the meditative experience, to walk or sit in beauty or in harmony. So now really I just... I don't think I've got a lot more to say. I am very happy to answer any questions. And I would like to, you know, if anyone wants me to go over anything to do with emptiness, emptiness of the self, emptiness of phenomena, emptiness in contemporary life, or what is the use of emptiness, or the practice of attention, please, please ask. <laughs> Are there any uh, contemporary movements uh, in Christianity with um, teachings of uh, John of the Cross? Mm, I wish I knew. None that I know of, but I'm not very well with that sort of thing. 
And I'd like to think there were. There must be somewhere. You know, maybe if you googled St. John of the Cross, you might come across something. But I'm afraid I, I can't point you to anywhere specific. Can you elaborate on relinquishing of opinions? I'm kind of cursed with opinions and views. <laughs> so am I. Um, <laughs> you know, I could babble on about the theory of it. The practice is much more difficult. Um... Was it over lunch, Tony, that you, was it you were saying about the lady who had been in a group and who hadn't got very far but had just refrained? It was Tony, wasn't it, who said, could you tell that story? You'll tell it better than I. One of the women in my sangha has spent, one of the women in my sangha who has been practicing for probably close to 10 years and has spent maybe a grand total of a one weekend on retreat has made incredible progress just by refraining from uh, chiming in in fam- moments of family distress just in, in withholding whatever it was that she was going to uh, reminds me John Cage once said he had an idea for a book that was going to be titled How to Improve the World You'll Only Make Matters Worse <laughs> That just reminds me of, I spent two months with my daughter and her family recently, and I was very trepidatious because we have some unresolved issues, and um, also thrilled that she invited me. And so I made the intention that in order to be with her and in her home for that long, I would have to not fill every silence not chime in with my opinions. <laughs> and this is not easy for me because I have a lot of opinions as well, especially around grandchildren and mm-hmm. how she might raise them better if uh, she'd only listened to me. And what it did was it threw me into a kind of retreat mode. So I started to see so much of who I was, in, and this has come up again today. I saw by not speaking and not leaping in the kinds of thoughts that were going through my mind behind what I would have said. And so much of it was all self-referential. It was all about being affirmed for my opinions and being the one who had the clever idea. It was shameful (laughs) in a way, but also unbelievably um, enlightening. So it helped me so much to see another thing that came up today briefly (laughs) was that when I was young, I was raised in an Irish Catholic culture. My, I remember my grandmother saying, we'd go shopping, fill the shopping cart, put the stuff in the car, and then she'd say, why don't you run along and take that cart back like a good Catholic girl? So, <laughs> I've long since left Catholicism, but I realized in those moments with my daughter, and then today in the medit- second meditation where I had to look at how, who was I what is this self? And this self is still this 
little Catholic girl trying to be a good girl. Yeah. And yeah. it's so uh, limiting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I am kind of breaking out, and the, the feeling of breaking out of that is one of um, recognizing that there just don't have to be these shoulds and have tos that I've lived my life by to make me be the good girl. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's been very liberating. So, and thank you for today. This was well, fabulous. Wonderful. Thank you for that very much. Um, I don't know if that helps. It also links into something else we were talking about at lunch, which was that maybe we don't have a lot of free will, but we may have more free won't. We may have more free won't than free will. That a lot of things just happen, but and I think sitting in silence and listening helps this. We can refrain. We can have that moment of choice of, do I put my opinion out there? Which I have to admit, mostly I jump in with both feet and it's quite often a mistake. And whether we can just leave that little space, and in that space then you... You see what you're doing. You see the pattern. Mm-hmm. And instead of just reacting and going into it, because it is instantiated in our brain, this is how we go. We run on default mode. But if we can be aware of that, it's training the awareness. Um, you know, and this is, I think, where psychotherapy and, and, and mindfulness and meditation meet, is that it is training the awareness to open up the space that gives you that little space to say, do I or don't I? And I do have that little bit of choice. And often, if you just can take that microsecond not to jump in, you find you don't need to. And I think like, like your lady who, you know, it, it can change things. I don't know. Does that make sense to? It's hard work, though. You know, as I say, like all these things, they sound so amazingly simple and so obvious, and they are so incredibly difficult to do or or not to do. Someone suggested a, a practice to me recently that I have found helpful. When I'm telling a story, sometimes I'm interrupted, and then I very much want to finish my story. And the suggestion was, wait to see if you're invited to finish it. And it's been very interesting. That's a good piece of advice, isn't it? It really, I can feel that, because I know the rejection I would feel if I wasn't invited to finish my story. And that is my stuff. And it's not to do with the person. So it's really good advice. But it's where the sort of those tacky aspects of self get in the way, isn't it? It's a beautiful example. Yeah. Um, 
first thing I want to say is I'm a big fan of emptiness. And and, um, just one thing that was sort of been going through my mind, and versions of this have gone through my mind for years. Um, I'm a former psychotherapist and a current Dharma teacher. And as a former, when I was a psychotherapist, I could have had a client come to me and say, I feel empty. And as a now Dharma teacher, I could have a student come and say, I feel empty. And it would mean totally different things. And for the client, it would indicate struggle and difficulty and pain. And for the student, it might. But it probably would mean a kind of freedom and and openness and presence. and also when I, uh, the client says, I feel empty, to me that's usually means depression. I mean, I'm just yeah. extrapolating yeah, yeah, sure. on. Um, and having been someone who's experienced depression, as well as the joy of emptiness, mm-hmm. um, I often wonder, you know, this was alluded to a little bit at the beginning, but is there... You know, I've wondered, is there a relationship between those two, really? Or are they just the same word for something um, something different? And, you know, I could say more about what I think about that, but I'm going to leave that for you. Um, but the other thing that came up for me is in the difference, my experiential difference in having those yes. two experiences. Yes. And this relates to yeah. your coin that you brought up, yeah. is, is when I'm feeling the emptiness of depression, I feel isolated and disconnected, and when I feel the emptiness of everything, um, I feel there's a that sense of um, of connectedness. I would, I guess, I would say, and uh, non-separateness would be a word as well say interconnectedness, but I would say I experience it more as connectedness and non-separation. And so then I wonder, are they the same thing, however the emptiness of depression somehow has the the connectedness has been thwarted? Or anyway, I think you get the idea where I'm going with this. I do, and I find what you said really helpful and useful. And I think think you've kind of nailed it. It It is one has the connection and the other does not. Um, are, they, are they actually connected? I th- possibly, because one is, 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 is the seeing of oneself as isolated, which can leave you unconnected when the chips are down. The other, you have... Um, you have that Indra's net, that safety net of interconnection. There's a wonderful quote that, if I can find you, of, 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 which I've always loved, and what you've said really, really makes that, um, makes that sort of come to light for me. Um, there's a writer called Terry Tempest Williams. I don't know if any of you know her, but she wrote something um, on seeing that, that photograph, Earthrise. You remember the first one taken from the moon, that very famous, it was a whole Earth post. Anyway, I gesticulate too much for this, this thing. 
Um, and after that, uh, Terry wrote somewhere in an interview with someone, if in fact we are in free fall, we can relax because we also know there is no ground, so no need for a parachute. If we are a part of the whole, what more do we want? And I think that's it. The emptiness of lack doesn't have... You, you just absolutely put it together for me. doesn't have that connection. You are in free fall. You don't believe the world is round. You, you are not a part of the whole. And that connection is what can make the emptiness bearable. I, th- I think there's another possibly... And, and I'm not sure whether to say this because it might complicate things. But I think, you know, there is no doubt Buddhism asks us to know that emptiness too, or that suffering or that dukkha. You know, the, the first sermon of the Buddha is suffering is to be known. You know, I really agree um, with Stephen Batchelor, who I think got it from a man whose name I can't remember, who talks of the Four Noble Truths as the Four Acts. And they're usually given just as truths as facts, but they're not. They're acts. Suffering is to be known. The causes are to be relinquished. Liberation is to be sought and the path is the way to do it. They're asking us to go out there and do something. Not They're not like a credo or a something we have to believe. And so suffering or that, that emptiness in the terms of lack is to be faced up to. It's to be acknowledged. You know, there is all the sufferings the Buddha talks about of not having what we want, of you know, losing what we did have of inevitable death apart from, you know, old age and um, illness. It is, if you like, the tragic dimension of life and we need to acknowledge that. Um, And until we've acknowledged it, if we try to ignore it, if we try to do the, the great be somewhere else and evade it all the time, then I don't think we can go forward. So the two, I think, in that way are linked. And you're absolutely right, and thank you so much for saying that. It's the connection. I wanted to tag on to that, because I was getting an image also of the idea that um, when we don't see the self as process, you know, that we, when we have this idea of some kind of fixed self, that it becomes the barrier that isolates us, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that when we start to see through that, then that falls away, which opens to this spacious emptiness, connectedness, because the isolation comes when we create some kind of artificial barrier. I think that's beautifully put. I think that's absolutely it. And I think you've just said the linking between the wisdom of emptiness that leads to the understanding and the action of compassion. Because when that barrier has gone, 
you feel with, I feel with, compassio, and you feel with, and then that compassion comes into action because you are part of the whole and the barrier. That's really lovely. Thank you. So that's kind of taking me to... um, The words are eluding me a little. Uh, I guess just um, the the relationship between emptiness and the third noble truth. And is that enough? Of the question, I think it is because it, yeah, the barriers are gone, and that I think is a definition of liberation. I, 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 I tend myself, being slightly non-mystical and non-devotional, to see nirvana as not something other, not something transcendent, not something up there. I've heard it called the, you know, the loss of, 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 of pride and, and, and ignorance and, um, you know, the three poisons and, and aggression um, and all of that. And I think that is a liberation. I'm sure there are stages of liberation, but I think it is the barriers down. I think that's a very lovely one the opening of the doors, the doors of the heart, the doors of whatever, the doors of the understanding. I think that might be quite a good place to stop. What do you think? Um, I'd quite like to... Would anyone like five minutes sitting before they go, or are you ready to go? Five minutes, little sit, just to uh, bring it to a close. And I want to thank you all. You've been the most wonderful audience. Group. Workshop. You know, I'm sorry, I don't. Um, my publisher is actually sort of in England, but I, um, and it's only just come out here, so I didn't manage to get a lot here, but they are available on Amazon. They can be ordered from your local bookstore. Um, they're distributed by the University of Chicago Press. In, in a, a philosophy of emptiness. And, and I will be here tomorrow. You know, I'm doing one on April the 10th in Marin, Point Reyes Books, bookstore in Point Reyes Station. And I am talking here tomorrow, yes. Um, which I will actually say to you now. I'm going to be talking on a philosophy of emptiness and a practice of attention. So I hope it won't be tedious for you and those of you that are coming again. Um, I hope it will be useful as a recap. It's not exactly the same. There's different stuff, but it is sort of in the same ballpark. So let us have just five minutes to come together and get ready to go out again.
I just want to end by uh, reading you one of my favorite quotes, I think, um, from the Japanese Dogen. To practice and confirm all things by conveying oneself to them is illusion. For all things to advance forward and practice and confirm the self is enlightenment. Studying the Buddha way is studying oneself. Studying oneself is forgetting oneself. Forgetting oneself is being enlightened by all things.